2: I'm Jenny Wren. I've been a festival booker for over 15 years, mom of two, four if you count the dogs. I've buried my sister and my parents, partied like it was 1999 for over 20 years, modeled for five minutes, worn far too many accessories and not enough self-care. I've had breast cancer and epiphanies. Safe to say, she's been around. You're listening to Hindsight Conversations, where my guests are invited to bring to the table what it is they want to discuss, feel ready to share from where they are in their lives. We meet it together with no agenda. No topic is off limits, from the frivolous to the profound, the gnarly to the joyful, painful to the practical. Red flag moments you can only see when looking back, but looking back to move forward. Join me weekly where we explore the 2020 vision of hindsight. Everyone has it. In this episode, I speak to Vera Lawler. She started as a student in Trinity College Dublin just last week, but her journey to Trinity has been far from conventional. All was a keen student who loved reading. She was just 15 years old when she was told on a Friday afternoon that she'd be leaving school to start work the following Monday. Late in 2019, her dear sister and best friend died. Not long after that, COVID-19 hit. A few months after the first lockdown, she retired from her 30-year career as a doctor's receptionist, and is now charting a new course and throwing out any ideas of a quiet retirement. More than 50 years after she left school, this inspirational mother of two and grandmother to three is finally walking through the front arch as a Trinity College student. In our conversation, we talked about family, work, grief, and her lifelong love of learning just a few days after she officially embarked on her new life as a college student.
0: Where do I begin? (laughs) Well, uh, I don't know whether you know it or not, but I am 66. I was born in 1955, the youngest of six children. Uh, I had two brothers and I had three sisters. Um, I don't remember a lot, funny enough, about my early childhood. I vaguely remember starting school and my mother bringing me down. And they weren't allowed in those days to go into the classroom, you see the way they do now. You were left at the door. The nun took your hand, gave you a sweet and brought you in. That was the end of that story. And I don't really remember much about that the start of that I don't remember anything about my first Holy communion the only thing I know is that I saw photographs of the dress I wore my first memories I think would be when I was around 10 uh, you know real memories and that was I was in fourth class and I had to teach her that I hated because she was an absolute bitch of evidence and <laughs> um, I- I would like to think she's not around now, but <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. But that, you know, once I left her then going into fifth class, and I always found that I absolutely loved school after that. And from there on, I remember making my confirmation. I remember the day of my confirmation, it was bucketing out of the heavens. And it was a time where when you went over to the church, Parents weren't allowed inside, it was only the kids. And you were terrified because you were told if you couldn't answer the question from the catechism, you couldn't make your confirmation. So the uh, the children were in every second row and the bishop would go around and pick people at random, we think. But luckily enough, I wasn't asked the question, so I got to make my confirmation. But the day after that, I remember out playing And an ambulance arrived up at the door, at the house. And my elder sister was taken off in the ambulance. I didn't know much about it at the time. I didn't find out later. I didn't understand, actually, until later on. She had been taken into St. Brendan's Hospital. She suffered a major breakdown and took an overdose. Bless her. Um, And I remember after that... You know, she used to have to attend a local psychiatrist. I always remember the name Dr. Lynch. And every time she'd come back from visiting him, she used to say to my mother, "She, well, he wants to see Vera. Um, and I used, I didn't know what it was about, but apparently she blamed me for her breakdown. Why, I don't know. But before that, she would had a child. I was only six at the time, but apparently I was very jealous of her. Okay. You know, six-year-old and a baby coming into the house. Yeah. and t- I would totally ignore her by all accounts. But um, I remember getting really upset one day. My mother was saying, don't be worrying. You know, it's fine. She, she, she can say what she likes. After I was born, my mother developed TB Ooh. and she ended up in, it was the Pigeon House Sanatorium. Uh, she spent a good few months in there. So my eldest sister basically reared me, I think, for about three years. Okay. And she would have been only 14 years older than me at the time. But my dad used to say he didn't know me because she'd have me in bed at four o'clock every afternoon. And I'd be still in bed when he would leave for work at six o'clock the following morning. So he said he didn't know me for a month. And he would only be, at that time, I think, you know, if you only allowed to go up to visit... My mother at certain times, so she did rear me. Now, in fairness, and the pigeon house closed. I think shortly after when Connolly Hospital opened, and they had units there for people who suffered TB. So, any time my mother was there, would have been she would have been there for I think about three months at a time. But uh, the children weren't allowed. You had to be over twelve to be allowed to go to visit her. But as we got older, she spent a lot of time in hospital. Now, in fairness. Uh, so I don't, my mother, I don't really have as many, as many memories as I'd like to have had mm. with her. Um, I remember one time she was there, um, myself my sister was still under 12. So he was trying to get us up to see her one Sunday. So what he had to do was he had a car at the stage and he drove up to Blanchettown. And before you go to the main gate, he stopped down the road and the two of us were shoved into the boot of the car because security were always at the gate to check inside the car to make sure there were no children under twelve, but they wouldn't check the boot of the car. So we got up to see her on a couple of occasions like that, you know. <laughs> but I was um, in the meantime. Then I was I went to secondary school, and I was go, I was due to do exams in the June. And I remember coming home from school on a Friday in May, the very beginning of May, and my mother saying, you won't be going to school next week. And didn't think too much about it.
3: Mm.
0: And I said, why? I said, there's a job lined up for you. My other sister had gotten a job for me and I didn't know about it. It was a time then, you know, Mm. they needed money. They needed money. It was financial. And... I remember crying my eyes out for the whole weekend and I wouldn't speak to my sister. I blamed her because I had to leave school. What age were you? I was 15. 15. And I remember the only time I ever got cheeky or with my mother was, I remember telling I wasn't going to school on the Monday. I wanted to go down to the school principal to explain to her mm. why, because I didn't want her thinking I was leaving because I was afraid of doing exams, or anything like that. And she was asking then, you know, if I go up and speak to your mother, you think, will she, would she change her mind? And I said, no, my mother makes up her mind. You know, nothing. God wouldn't change it for her. So I started on the Monday with a local bakery. And I always remember you had to work a week and then you got paid the following week. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And the wages was £4.10 shillings. (laughs) Wow. For 40 hours, I think it was just over 40 hours a week, it had to work. So all I was doing at the beginning was, you know, you're wrapping the cakes, you know, for mm. to be sent out to shops. So I did that for a while. And then I had loved it. I loved science and French, especially in school. And I had a French teacher, Miss Mondo was her name, lovely woman. And she knew I wanted to continue with the French. So she made some tapes for me. Mm -hmm. and sent them off to me so I would continue to learn. So I ended up then, when you got paid then, you didn't say how much you handed up, your mother told you what you put hand up. So what I was left with then, I started going tonight's, tonight classes. And I signed, I went to Eccles Street to do French. I did that for a year. And then I went to the local Spanish nuns convent, which was in Finglas at the time and I did my shorthand and typing course there. Um, and while I was there, I I actually enjoyed it, I have to admit. Then one evening I was coming home. It would have been the November. I'd started in the September and I used to come home with another girl and we'd walk home together. She lived not too far from me. But she wasn't there one night, so I had to come home on my own. And I was going through, there was this me that you couldn't avoid. And I was obviously, I was only the only one walking through this me. And I was walking and, you know, the way, you, I don't know whether you notice, kind of out of the corner of your eye, and I could see mm-hmm. somebody walking down the other side. And I'm walking past and he walks past me. And next thing, I'm dragged by the neck down into this other end of the the lamy, and I remember I remember freezing. I couldn't. I thought I was screaming, but I wasn't. And I have to. It was probably only for a few seconds. I don't know, but I did eventually manage to let out a scream. And there was a lad phone down. The family used to sell papers locally, the newspapers and he was going to the pub with his girlfriend for a drink and he heard and he came down. And I have to admit, I think only for him, God knows what would have happened to me that God. night. Wow. And he, I remember he chased after this bloke, but couldn't catch up with him. But he brought him and his girlfriend, brought me home. And my mum and dad, they just said, look, you know, some day explained to me, my dad especially, what had happened. So himself and my brother went out then in the car mm. and they drove around trying to find it. I was reported to the guards. But after that, then for a while after that, someone needed to walk me down. And then when the other guy was back, the two was, would still walk back together. But that, that stuck with me for a good while. And then eventually things sort of settled down and I stopped thinking about it. But I continued with the course.
3: Wow. And
0: then about 10 months into the course, I was offered a job, my first office job. But in the meantime, while I was working in the bakery, the manager of the bakery found out I was doing the night courses and called me into his office and sacked me. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? And the reason he was sacking me was because why did somebody of my age think I could better myself? Oh my God. And that was his attitude at the time. So I went down because my sister then was still working there. And I went, she worked in the canteen and I went down and I just said, I've been sacked. And she said, Why? So I up and told her, you know, mm. what had been said. So she went down to the union because she was in the union at the time. Okay. And he came up and he had to come back to me that evening and tell me that um it was okay. I could go back. I was still employed there. Oh, my God. But then that attitude, and I said, to hell with you, you know? So before when I got off offered the first office job, I talked that I was gone out of there like a hot snot.
2: I can imagine.
0: And I got a job at a transport company. And um, then in the meantime, my mother was starting to take really bad. I got the job in the August and coming up to that Christmas, my mother hadn't felt well. And just before the New Year, then she was taken into hospital. And she passed away then, that march. She never came out of it. Oh, God. But I tell you the innocence, I remember, God, when the day she died, my dad woke up that morning at 10 to 4 and went in to my, one of my other sisters and just said to her, I'm going up to the hospital before to bring your mother down to the morgue. And we didn't have a phone in the house at that time. And uh, Roshi was saying, what do you mean? He said, I'm going up to see your mother. We said, you know, how do you know? He said, I just know. So they went up to the hospital, apparently, and uh, they went in and it was confirmed that my mother had died. And my sister Roshi just happened to ask the nurse. It, it, it kind of got to her. And she just asked nurse, would you mind telling me what time my mother passed away at? Mm. So she said 10 to 4.
2: Wow.
3: And
0: it was the exact time my father woke up. He just knew
2: gotcha.
0: instinctively.
2: So what but, age uh, was your mom, Pira?
0: My mom, was uh, she had just turned 56. Wow. Uh, her birthday he was on the 8th of March and she died on the 26th. Wow, so young. So and she you, was were, very young. you were
2: now, were you 16?
0: I, only, I was 16. Yeah. And I remember they came back that morning and they called the rest of us you know, to come down and told us what happened. So there used to be, it's not pennies, I can't remember what the shop was called, in the local village. And I was sent down to buy all the black tights and the black material that had to go on Mm -hmm. the women's coats. They used to have to put a diamond on the arm of a coat. Okay. so that if you were out somebody knew that there was a death in the family you had to keep it on I think for three months but I, I was bitching about the fact I, had, I was the one who was sent down to buy all the time <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and I think but I said Jesus I must have been a right bitch at the time <laughs> to see I'd always known my mother to be sick mm. you know she was forever in hospital um, you know with the TB like I say she was kind of sick on a regular basis then after that and then she got to a point where she was confined to a wheelchair and the last kind of year of her life she couldn't even walk you know see the hell from the house to the gate which wasn't that far and um, then as I got I got very close to my dad, I have to admit, and I always found that my dad was ahead of his time.
3: Mm.
0: I felt um, I could confide in him about a lot of stuff that you know I don't think a lot of girls would say to their fathers. But um, even if you were going out, you know he'd never he'd always be awake when you came in at night. You know he he always had this thing. But after that, then I just continued working, um, I got a couple of jobs in the meantime. And of course, the hormones that in, and I was allowed to go dancing. Um, first place I ever went to the disco was Tiffany's. It was behind the old roaches' stores.
2: Tiffany's. <laughs> oh, it was a great place. <laughs> <all> glamorous.
0: <laughs> and uh, that was the first my first experience. I used to go there every Saturday, except for my friend now. What we used to do, there was a little cafe at the top of O'Connell Street. So we'd go in there about 10 o'clock and we ordered a glass of orange, a slice of appetite and fresh cream. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. So that was our, you know, because we didn't drink. Yeah. We didn't drink at that stage. So we used to have that and then we'd go in and I actually got very lucky with dates and... a couple of times ago, someone you know, which you wouldn't do now, would have a car, so they'd give us a lift home. <laughs> so it saved us taxi fares. I remember it was 50 pence, um, 10 shillings to get into it. So expensive at the time. But then I started dating, and then I met Tommy, and it's called me Tommy Down for about two years before. And then we got married. We made, we got married. So course, we're almost 41 years married now. Mm. So I continued working, got all the jobs, um, still continued working. And I remember when I got pregnant on Duran, the boss we had, I worked for a wholesale drug company at that stage. But this, the man we had who was over us in the office at the time, didn't believe in married women working. Okay. But the law had been passed that once you're married, you could.
3: Mm.
0: But the law hadn't passed whereby you could automatically go back to work
3: okay. after
0: you got married. You had to go, you'd to get permission from your boss. And I remember going up to him and asking him, and, you know, I was due to leave that Christmas uh, about going back to work after maternity leave. Maternity leave in those days was 14 weeks.
3: Okay.
0: Seven weeks before and seven weeks after. And I had said to him about going back and his words were, it's not the law yet. It doesn't come into effect until the 6th of April. Uh, so when the time comes, I will apply the law. But until then, I don't see why any married woman should be working, let alone a woman with a child. So that put, that was out with the frame. But I was doing a bit of part-time for the, the doctor at that stage. So I continued doing, you know, kind of working for him, was grand. and then we were saving up. Jerome was born then February of 81 and Thomas came along in July of 83. Yeah, you should have to think about that. <laughs> so in the meantime, I remember we were saved to buy a house. And because our wages wasn't, you know, in order to get a bidding society loan, you had to be above a certain wage, which we didn't qualify for. So we eventually qualified for, it was a Dublin Corporation loan. So we ended up there, we went house hunting and we bought the house, Very we Inn. Now, never moved out of it. Turned out to be literally across the road from my dad's house. Wow. <laughs> Didn't move far, you know yourself. Yeah. Continued working and, as I say, had Joanne, then had Thomas. And my sister, Roisin, she passed away two years ago, almost two years ago. And she was like the other mother. mother. Mm.
3: Yeah, you
0: know, she was great. I have to admit, now I would have been lost without her. And um, my brother had been painting the house, his own house one day, and he fell off the ladder. And ever since that then, you know, he never felt right. And mm. I always remember my dad turning around and saying to to us one day, Larry has cancer. And we thought my dad it was a bit loopy you now at this stage, you know, I'm thinking. <laughs> Losing the clot, but he kept saying, "I'm telling you, Larry has cancer." And time went on, and my brother Larry would have been very thin at the time, but he was getting thinner, and we noticed then that one hand was thinner than the other. So he hadn't. He had to take a nail one night. He worked for CIE at the time, and I remember. 81, February of 81, the year of the really bad snow. Mm. And on that Friday, it was early February. And he hadn't felt well. And he went to what was Dr. Stevens's hospital at the time. They told him they couldn't find anything wrong with him. Came out there, no buses, no taxi. So he had to walk from Stevens's hospital to where he lived in Ballymorm. And he went home and he literally collapsed in the house. And his wife rang up, there was a CIE doctor, and she rang up the CIE doctor, explained what had happened. And he had told her then, take him down to the Richmond hospital, because he was on the board of governors or something there at the time. Mm. And uh, he arranged for an ambulance to come, and Larry was taken, that was on the Friday. Then on the Monday, it was his daughter's birthday. And then we got a call then from his wife to say Larry had been diagnosed with cancer. And it was inoperable at that stage. Mm. And he had only been complaining from around that October. Um, So they gave him six months. And he died then in July, so that was five months later. He was only 36. I remember one time when Joanne I, when Joanne was about two years of age, I put her name down for one of the local schools, but it was a Church of Ireland school. And we were Catholics. And two and a half years later we got a notification that she had been accepted. And I just remember thinking, how am I going to tell my dad? you because know, my dad was, you know, like myself said he was a proper practising Catholic. And I remember going up to him and telling my dad that Joanne had been accepted. And he was, I was saying the school that she was going to. And he said, sort of, I always wanted to see what the inside of that school looked like. <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there was me thinking, he was going, why don't you put her into a Catholic school? But yeah, it was just a small school. It was a three teacher school. But I remember when it came up to First Holy Communion. And we had to make our own arrangements. So I remember going down to the local priest and to try and sort out, you know, kind of communion. And he was saying, what school are they in? And I was saying, you know, she was in the local parochial school. Well, talk about reading a the riot act. And he said, well, if you're so interested in your child making a first whole communion, why don't you put her into a proper Catholic school? You're not a Protestant school. You know, and I just got mad and I said, well, put it this way. My children go to school. My children go to mass every week. Every Saturday they were brought to mass, whether they liked it or not. So I, I buy the books from this church that teaches them the prayers. So I, I can guarantee so you put, you ask her questions and ask the child from the local Catholic school the same questions. I'll tell you, my daughter will be able to answer them more of them than they will. So I'm making sure, so it's my responsibility. But I, at the time then he realised what he was annoyed about was, you know, decapitation grant. They weren't, you know, for every every Catholic child that went to a Protestant school, they were losing out on the grants. Right. Okay. But he kept saying that, he started saying, well, you're not even part of this um, parish. And I said, we are because we're literally, we're kind of on the board, I suppose. But he kept insisting, no, it wasn't the case. So I went up to the other church and I said it to the priest up there, Father O'Connor, who was the parish priest at the time, he was a lovely man, and I was saying it to him. And he said, look, you're not actually in our parish, but what he said, what I recommend you do, he said, is ring Archbishop House.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: He said, there's a section there for primary schools. He speaks, he's aimed at the name the priest to ask for. And explain your situation and just see what he says. He said, if there's a problem, he says, come back to me. And they can make, you know, she can make her first holy communion here. So I remember then getting on to uh, Archbishop House, I explained to him. And he checked it out and he said, no, you're on the, you're in the jurisdiction of the First Church. And I had to go back down to see the priest the following day and explain to him, i had been on to He said, you let him know that you're on to me. So I went down, Judy spoke to him. And uh, I open said you know, I'd been on to you know to Archbishop House. Oh, there's no need for that. There's no need for that. So we, of course they can make the first Holy Communion oh, my God. Now there are only a handful of these kids making the first Holy Communion. They'll talk about making a difficulty. never were once told, as I remember, about any of the practices that were going on
3: mm.
0: during the first Holy Communion, they were put literally to the end of the church, you know, at the very back of the other schools. They weren't even allowed to you know, you couldn't even put them in between and never allowed to bring anything up to the altar as an offertory, you know, and he deliberately ignored us and he was, he was eventually transferred. Um, but he, he made life really very difficult. And um, the same then when Thomas was making his first sort communion. But I remember it was the idea though, you know, that they were just annoyed at the fact that I had them in, Mm. This bloody, you couldn't even say Church of Ireland you know Protestant mm. school
3: Protestant, yeah. but I never
0: regretted sending them there you know as far as I was concerned it was a three teacher school parents you know the teachers knew the parents from junior infants right up and then so Thomas, it, was, it was the size of the school that sort of drew you there that there would be yeah, yeah. I did not want them in a large school mm-hmm. I just didn't I, I, I favoured the smaller school but mm. uh, but I, I remember Thomas, especially. Um, he was only about a year there, and he got up here one morning and he said he didn't feel well. And after me, he looked a bit pale. And I said, Okay, take you off school for the day, bring you down to the doctor. Brought him down to the doctor and examined him. And he says, Fear it, touch school schoolitis. <laughs>
3: That's all it was. <laughs>
0: And I wanted to kill him. I swear to God, I wanted to kill him. And only for him, the doctor's father was there, <laughs> he would have got a smack. <laughs> <laughs> but I always remember saying, You've done it once, that can never happen again. And poor Joanne, she never forgave him first for because any, any time she'd be trying to get a day off school, I'd say, But she'll go to school. If the, if the teacher thinks it's serious, they'll, they'll phone. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, if I never got a phone call all the way to primary school for <laughs> <to> each <laughs> But Duran used to hate it, the fact that, you know, you, they couldn't get. And I think that's probably what it was. I think it was the fact that I missed out. Okay. And I wanted to make sure that they got the opportunity. The education, yeah. Yeah, for me, it was all important. Mm. And I remember being pregnant on Duran, And I had both of them in Hollis Street Hospital. So then I'd go for the antenatal visits, I always walked a Trinity and I'd go in completely different to the way it is now. But I'd walk in and I'd sit over where the cricket grounds were mm. and I'd sit there for a while. And maybe, you know, if I had an apple, you know, have something to eat and then I'd go off. And I always visualised myself being there. And so I think, but I think that was the reason why with the kids, you know, I hated the idea of them having a day off unnecessarily because okay. I, I just felt, you know, education is everything. Mm. You know, it will eventually open doors for you. Leaving before your time, you're very restricted. Mm. Uh, I mean, I had done then while they were in school, I got the opportunity to do an interior design course through Duran Secondary School. And then um, a computer course. Because uh, I, I trained as a short-hand typist, but when the computer started to come, I had to start learning about that. And then I had to learn on the software, you know, how to, how to work that. So I continued, as I say, I continued working. And um, the doctor I worked for was, he, he was like a big brother to me you now. I remember. And I, I found I could confide in him about a confide in him about a lot of stuff mm. uh, that he wouldn't be able to talk to anybody else about. Or, with the exception maybe of my sister, I would be Roche and I would kind of, you know, we were we were very close. Probably because we only lived across the road from mm. each other helped. Um but he my boss then took ill and he was, he was down in the surgery one day and he'd, he just said that, you know, his back was killing him. And I remember slagging him. I said, eh. and then, you know, you've run into delirium." And I said, you might want to get that old prostate checked. And he just started laughing and he said, no, no, it's just all your coffee that's running out of me. But he was eventually diagnosed um, with cancer. And he underwent treatment and he went into remission for a couple of years and then the cancer came back. So he was due to retire, and he took the week. The week he was, he had retired. You know, he, he, the cancer was back again, and he ended up back in hospital. So when he retired, so the doctor took over. And then Al lived for, I think, about six months after. He died the following in February. He retired in July and he died the following in February. Mm. So his death had a, an impact on me because mm. I'd known him for so long, very close. And, you know, when there was stuff going on, you know, kind of in my life, he was always there, you know, in the background. And, you know, he'd tell her, advise you. You know, he, he was fantastic. And things changed then when the other doctor took over. I always kind of felt he only had me there, you know, because he felt he was obliged to him in one way, um, because he knew I would have had enough information about patients that okay. I would be able to say, well, I mean, in fairness, the old boss had said to him at the time, look, you know, there are patients who will confide in Vera mm. and she know more about the patients than I will know and she's a great source of information. So I think that was part of the reason. I continued working with him for for until I retired. Three years, four years back now, my elder sister, Molly, who reared me, she kept reminding me. Mm. Uh, She, her husband had been diagnosed with cancer then as well, and he died in the April. And I remember the day of the funeral, and we were talking to myself and my sister, and were saying she didn't look well. And uh, two months after that, she was she didn't she wasn't mad, she was taken in the hospital. She was with a kidney infection. and um, was told she'd be only in about two or three days. And next thing we got word that she had been rushed up to ICU. And she ended up in ICU for 16 weeks on a ventilator. Oh
3: wow.
0: Um so she, she died less than six months after her husband. My sister Rosine. She'd had a few operations on her back. But she was getting worse and to the point where she had to use one of these walking frames, you know, like a a wheelie thing to get about. But then the year she died, she's two years dead now in October. But that January she ended up in hospital. She wasn't well and she had a really bad infection. But when she came home, it was like she changed insofar as it was like she didn't really care. She was losing the will mm. because she was in chronic pain. And she'd been in chronic pain for years. And after, I remember she wasn't eating and a nice kind of like being over fruit. And she'd be given out Then and said, I, I should. I don't eat that much, you know, or I'm, I'm eating my dinners, but I knew because she couldn't even turn on the cooker anymore because she couldn't bend. And for someone who was so straight, she ended up literally totally bent over. And um, then she, in the September, she she wasn't well. And uh, trying to get her to go to the doctor, she wasn't having it. And I remember on the Sunday before she went into hospital she was she was saying she really needed to have a shower she hadn't got the energy to and I just said, look, we'll go up, I'll get a shirt, no problem. Mm. So I did and I just noticed then I hadn't really I should have really noticed before that. But I noticed then she had gone very yellow, very jaundiced looking. And I knew it was serious then. And I was trying to get her to get the ambulance, and mm. she said, you, you ring for the ambulance, I'm not going in it. So I was asking her about going to the doctor, she wouldn't go. And then talked to her on the Monday, she said she felt fine. And I said, I'll go over and see you. And no, she says, leave it, sure, I'll, I'll see it tomorrow. But then the following day, I phoned her and I asked her how she was, she said, not great. And I said, in what way? So she said, her stomach was killing her. So I said, look, that's it, mm-hmm. need an ambulance. So got phone for the ambulance anyway. So I phoned Joanne and said, look, around to to the house, you need to get an ambulance for her. So two and a half hours we were waiting for the ambulance that day. There had been a shooting and there had been a delay. Mm-hmm. So they got her over and I managed to get it. The nurse came up and she covered for me and Joanne came picking picked me up and brought me up to the hospital. And I just remember the, the doctor asked her some questions, and she started saying it isn't, you know, going on for a while, and I, I, just lost it with her, and I remember saying, for fuck's sake, oh, she didn't you say it to me,
3: mm.
0: you knew right well. But she ended up; they were doing tests. They wanted to bring a, he had to bring a down to Beaumont, and she was waiting five or six days. To be brought down. Now in fairness, once they brought her in, they found a bed for her fairly quickly. Okay. But she wasn't getting any better. And then in the meantime, she had a fall in the hospital, okay. two o'clock in the morning. I got a phone call on the Sunday, just to be telling me that she had fallen. But they had brought her down for an x-ray, a skull x-ray and a chest x-ray. And I remember waiting for days a few days and they weren't coming back with any results. So I asked a couple of times. I remember one of the doctors in the hospital. I went up one of the evenings again, and I was just say, "Look, she had this accident Saturday night, Sunday mm-hmm. morning. Surely you have this results back?" So, um, and I said, I, "I need to see a doctor about her because they weren't giving me any information." So I was kind of getting a bit ratty at this stage and. This doctor was, you know, she was sitting there and she just had to look. Yes, she had the, She had the um, skull x-ray, she said, and there's no fracture. I said, what about the chest x-ray? Mm. And she kind of looked, so she had the chest x-ray done as well. And they said, oh, yeah, there's an um, infection, you know, in, in the lower left lobe. So I said, so she has the pneumonia, has she? And she looked at me as if she was surprised I knew what she was talking about. Mm. So they start, but what I I found out then in the meantime, when she was admitted into hospital, she told the doctor she wanted a DNR put on her chart.
3: Wow.
0: And I was saying, but why? You know, she, she kept saying, "I'm not coming out of here." I said, "Back off, you know, you'd be grand," mm-hmm. but she got worse anyway. And I remember her friend went up to see her a few days beforehand. And you were talking about Christmas, and you were saying you we'll have to go and have a drink before the Christmas. And ocean was saying, Rita, I'm not going anywhere. She said, Of course, Bill. And she was saying, No, she said, I won't be
3: here.
0: I mm. said, I'll, I'm, I'll be coming out of here in a box. So that Sunday, then I always remember getting the phone call. They wanted to see me. Too. So they were saying her kidneys had stopped working, and because of the DNR, they needed to talk to her, but you wanted me there. Mm. So she was refusing everything. She said, anything happened? She said, no. And she ended up, up in ICU on the Sunday. And that went on for two days. And I remember on the Monday night, we were up at the hospital. Stayed over, we stayed over. And on the Monday evening, I just said, I'll come home just for a couple of hours and i would be back. And I had asked the nurse, you know, would it be okay to, ring, to see how she is in the meantime? So I said, yeah. So I came home, Thomas and Joanne came back. And I remember just feeling uneasy. And I phoned the hospital to ask how she was. So I said she wasn't great. And I could hear these alarms going off mm-hmm. in the background. And I said, is that for motion by any chance? And he said, yeah. He said, we can't get her heart rate down. And because of the DNR, they were very restricted of what mm. they could do. <laughs> so we went back up to the hospital. I remember saying it to the kids, she's waiting until tomorrow. And they're saying, wife, it's Larry's birthday tomorrow. So she's waiting until tomorrow, So I'm telling you. So we notified his children as well. His One of his daughters lives in England, but the other daughter lives in Wicklow, So she came up the following day anyway. But they came remember being called in into a meeting and they were saying they had done as much as they could for her. Mm. Um, and then he said we could keep her on life support. But there was only one particular tablet that was keeping her alive. So because I was next to Ken I was the one who had to make the decision. And oh. uh, now my brother and my sister were at the, in the meeting. And I remember just asking, well, if she's left the way she is, you know, what are her chances? And you're saying, well, she could be here, you know, she could probably be here for about six months in ICU. And I knew she didn't want that. So I said, well, what happens if she's taken off this medication? And they just said, well, you're talking maybe a day. So I had to make a decision based on that, and then I knew what Roshan was like. So I said no, so I take God's tablet.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so he got in touch then um, with the the hospice because they're based on the in the grounds there in Connolly Hospital, and then they got they came in and they obviously you know walked the medication on her. And we got called in and they were saying she might last for a day. Mm. So the whole family were there at that stage. And at one point I was up. I was kind of, you know, it's was just stroking her hair. And I just remember saying to her it's okay to go. Larry and Ma'am were there. Mm-hmm. And Molly. And just remember saying I hope you have a good party up there and with Larry. Mm-hmm. And less than five minutes after she was gone. That, had, that really had affected me more
3: mm-hmm.
0: I think than any of the others, you know, um, I think it's because we were just so close, you know. Uh, was like we were bitching buddies. <laughs> <laughs> but the world to write, we'd give out about everybody and, you know, just the usual kind of things. And, you know, we'd mm. go out every once in a while. Mm. But she had gotten to a point where she, you know, she didn't want to be going out. Hmm. But I knew her quality of life was just gone down the drain as far as she was concerned, and she just couldn't deal with it anymore, you know? No. no. That was um, but, um, quite a yeah, responsibility was- to have to make that call,
2: even though, of course, it was the right call and the only call, but it still, I'm sure, feels
0: weighty. Yeah. And then, like I said, I didn't realize, you know, I have to admit now, Joanna Thomas, they were, they were brilliant. I would have been totally lost without the parent, mm-hmm. especially afterwards, um, you know, kind of great help. And as the weeks went on, then I noticed I, I suffer with these seizures.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, they're not epileptic. They're stress-related. Mm-hmm. And I remember after my boss died, these seizures got really bad. I ended up in hospital on one occasion for three days because I knocked myself out. Oh, jeepers. But um, they did. I mean, I had all the tests done and it turned out and it wasn't epilepsy, but they did say it was more of a stress-related. Mm-hmm. So they had said, obviously something happened to you or something has happened that has triggered this thing off. And I ended up going to see uh, the doctor in, in Beaumont at the time had recommended this uh, neuropsychologist. And I went to see her in in Levan's and uh, Thomas came at me that day, Duran dropped us down. And the whole time I was with her, apparently, I, she said, you know, the whole time in your first couple of visits here, she said, you were constantly having these seizures. Mm. But over time, I mean, I attended her for well over a year. And in other way, you kind of know at the back of it, what triggered it all, but you don't want to admit it. You know, I kind of had, to, you know, kind of knew really at the back, but wasn't prepared to talk to anybody about it. Mm. And I remember one of the days then going into her, and I was in a position where I could tell her of these two particular things that had happened. Mm. And it was after this, you know, when DC just got bad. And I always remember saying, Do You know what? She said, You've been here for an hour, said, You haven't had one. So finally, I was able to get it out there. But she, you know, she, she talked about the mindfulness which I was doing as well, and I had to—I found that absolutely brilliant. But I remember after Rosine died, and the, the 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 they started to get bad again, and Thomas made, Thomas made an appointment with her with this uh, neuropsychologist, unbeknownst to me. And in fairness, like I say, she gave me a very quick appointment. so she gave me the last appointment of the day. And I remember going down and I explained to her, you know, kind of general chat, and I told her then about Roshi and what had happened and how I felt, you know, I had I had guilt feelings because the decision was left up mm. up to me. And I felt like I was acting like her God, you know, mm. determining whether she lived or died. And I think that's probably what I found hard to live with
3: mm. for
0: some time. But I didn't realise by the time i finished talking to her, I was with her for two hours. Okay. But apparently she only charged me for the hour. <laughs> but, but I have to admit, you know, she gave me a few pointers in terms mm. of sort of getting back so then over the coming weeks, I was still working away. Now, I loved my job. Mm-hmm. I absolutely loved my job. But things had been changing. You know, there were things happening and I wasn't happy about it. And I remember just sitting down one of the days and I just said, "You know, I just took stock mm-hmm. and decided, because I had planned to work until next year to continue working. And I just decided, you know what, it's not worth it anymore. I said, handing him a notice. I've, I've had enough. And there's more to life than walking 40 hours a week and just being a number. I ended up handing him a notice and I left last July. So I was trying to get onto a couple of courses locally. And a lot you know, because of the COVID, you know, had changed mm. things. So I eventually got into, onto a course, but I had already been going on for a few weeks in introduction to psychology. And Hatchim I found it really interesting though and very enjoyable. But in the meantime, but because I was trying since last Christmas to get onto a course and nothing was happening, I had decided that I knew about the Trinity Access Programme, but never, re- I just assumed it was for children in secondary schools who wouldn't otherwise be able to go. Hmm. And I don't know what made me go onto their page. And I started reading through it and discovered anyone of any age can apply. So I decided I'd have to go at it. I I did something to anybody, and I filled in all the forms. You had to you had to write an essay about something that was in the news at that particular time. Uh, then you had to do another essay as to why you felt you should be considered for this course. And I, re- I remember I sent it in in the February, and you were having a meeting, a Zoom meeting in the March, for anyone who wants to be on the, at the meeting and to give you information about how you apply what you need, and all the rest. So Giddy here has already done all the stuff, sent it all in, essay and all of them. And next thing, they were given the talk, and you were talking about the essay, and you were saying about, you know, the essay can be about anything that's currently in the news. And wanted to care as he was doing it, Sarah. She turned down and she says, Now, please, she says, I know we am going to have about 200 essays coming in. Please don't write about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and I, t- all I could think of, oh, shit, that's me out of frame. Right. And because what did I write about? COVID. COVID. So I didn't think any more about it. I, I had assumed that that was it. It wasn't going to happen. So next thing, uh, about a month later, I get this email from Trinity telling me that I'd been shortlisted for an interview. So if for the interview then, they were going to ask general questions. Um, I had to read the book, you know, whatever book I was kind of reading and be able to talk about it, what was in the book. And I love all these, you know, 24 hours in A and E, and Mary Cassidy, fascinated with her. And I had, I had her book and I had been reading it anyway. So I kind of spoke about that. And they were asking then, you know, about the essay. And I just remember saying, to be honest, I didn't think I had a chance of an interview because of what she said at the meeting. Uh, she says, I don't mind me. So she just said did you do any research on it and i said no i actually did it from a personal perspective because during the first lockdown i was classed as essential services so i had to go to work every day mm. and i remember kind of walking down the road and all you know the curtains closed and all the cars outside and all the good thing go seven o'clock in the morning and you're walking past bastards they're all off <laughs> But once I got into work, I was fine.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I wrote about it from the you know, from that aspect going down, how things changed in the surgery. Mm. Um patients, the effect, you know, I felt the effect that I had on them. Um, about what I think was gonna happen in the future as a consequence mm. in terms of mental health and especially mental health for children. Mm. And children with special needs that, you know, it was going to, you know, have a, a knock-on effect. But asked if then did you do any research? And I said, no, it was just literally,
3: mm.
0: you know, from my own thing. Uh, so that was it then. And then two weeks later, I got a firm offer <laughs> of a place on the course. So that's when I told... You know, but I had to tell Tommy, funny enough, on the day of the meet of the meeting because he was kind of around and I was trying to set up the laptop. So I ended up telling him and I said, Say nothing. And then when I got the notification, uh, I just sent a text message to Joanne and Thomas and I just, it was something like, What do you think of your mummy going back to school? And just saying, I've been accepted into Trinity. And they were both, Why didn't you say anything? And I said, well, if nothing came, if nobody needed to know, mm.
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and say, so now I've been accepted onto the program. Now I don't mind telling people. Mm. But uh, I did say that I didn't really want too many people knowing about it because, you know, I always had this thing that until it actually happens, mm. you know, like I until Monday when I actually went in, <laughs> then it was real. Um, but. I always kind of felt, you know, all, you know, all the way through that, you know, I kind of... that I had... Thomas might laugh when he hears me saying this, but I, I do believe I have guardian angels.
3: Okay.
0: And that they're watching out for me. I always firmly believe it's my own family. Mm. Um, and I I used to write to Roisin. I had this journey. I haven't written to her for a while but for up to a couple of weeks ago i used to see this robin out the back garden regularly and they always say you know kind of a robin yeah, is a sign yeah. of and it, he probably thinks i'm nuts but i believe it. that's that's I all that matters yeah you know i do genu- genuinely yeah. believe it. Mm. but yeah so now i'm on a new journey i'm hoping to be, I, I, I'm just hoping now, as time goes on, I'll get myself into a routine where I can study. It stays up in the brain
3: mm-hmm.
0: because I would, as I say, it's been a dream of mine for 40 years.
2: Wow!
0: Never thought it in my wildest dreams it would happen.
2: Mm. And the program is so. Do you cover? Do you initially just cover a lot of basics, and then you branch off into a degree that you wish to? What pursue? happens?
0: What actually happens now is uh, we do certain subjects, as I say, now we have orientation this week. Um, next week we have the exploratory classes uh, lectures. So they lecture in the sciences and the arts. Uh, there'll be psychology, sociology, biology. Um, then there's history, English, and I can't remember what the other one is. So we have to do all of those now for, for two weeks.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the end of that, then we make a decision. We can choose up to three subjects to study then after that. Then we have exams for Christmas and exams again at the end of this the year. But in order to be able to go on to do your degree, you mm-hmm. have to pass these exams. So... For me, if I can achieve that, I will think I'm bloody great.
2: We'll all think you're great. (laughs) I mean, we think you're great now. I think you're great now, (laughs) irrespective of what you get in an exam. I'm yeah, like like, and have you an idea of the degree you'd like
0: to do? I was thinking, funny enough, of psychology Mm. and history also. Is something I, I think I might like as well. I'm really, I am I think until I do these kind of lectures over the next two weeks, there'll be three weeks mm. uh, from this week. Uh, I think once, because they give you a flavour of what's ahead mm. and, you know, the type of thing you'd be studying. So I think once I do that, then I will, you know, be clearer in my own head as mm. to what I want to do.
3: Mm.
0: But as I say, just to get onto that programme was an absolute... Surprise, never thought never thought it would ever happen didn't know it was available. Wow. Well had I not given up work last year, it wouldn't have happened.
3: No.
0: So that's what I firmly believe, you know, my angels were guiding me, you know, give it up, go for something
3: else.
0: Mm. Um because I decided if I didn't get onto this that I would probably look for a bit of part-time work just to get out of the house because I'm I'm so used to being out of the house. Okay. But really looking forward to it. Like I say, it's a whole new experience. And as I say, the group I'm currently with now, you know, since last Monday, they are really a nice, you know, and I say a bit of banter and, you getting, know, lost
2: and um, <laughs> getting lost in Trinity and... Getting lost in Trinity. Fag breaks We're with, actually with getting the class.
0: <laughs> I remember Georgina when, when she was bringing me around the other day and I was saying, you know, the chapel I'd love to see. You now, hopefully I'll get to see that either this week or next week when it's open. And uh, so she was saying, there's the chapel. There's the exam hall that you would be doing your exams in. Look at further situations, literally across <laughs> from each other. Barely. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah, no, I am. It, it, it's been a great experience. As I say, I, I was lucky, though, for the years i worked I worked in an area that I loved
3: Mm.
0: you know, it's just circumstances, you know, things that happened and I just felt the time had come Mm. you know, to give it up and I I think really what triggered it off was when my sister Roshin passed and it just made me realise, you know she was 69, I think life is way too short. As I say, as I was growing up, my mother was in and out of Mm. Connolly Hospital, you know, so it would be you'd only see her for short periods of time and then she'd end up back. So I, I became so close to my dad after she died, you mm-hmm. know? And yeah, he was an absolute gem of a man. Mm. You could have good crack with him now. <laughs> but yeah, I I think without him, you know, and like I say, I'm then roaching as well at the same time, mm-hmm. because I remember after my my mother died, she was left basically she was looking after the house. Mm-hmm um she was sort of put in charge of the money and the bills <laughs> she used to make sure we all paid up every Friday <laughs> she wouldn't let us away with a penny
3: okay
0: but she was great you know she mm. was you know she she was working full time as well and mm. you know she would do up the house every so often and my dad used to hate to hate the house being done up, but once it was done, he said, "Oh, gosh, that's a lovely job."
2: Delighted. But yeah. <laughs> the process, I would not so much, but then the the end result always good.
0: Yeah. Apparently, I have his temperament. You know, which I'm, I, I'm quick. You know, I can be quick tempered, but uh, yeah, but it takes a lot to really get me going. But sometimes, when I really do get going, it's time to run, and mm. I really lose it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So- well I think that has, has served you, hasn't it? It's, you
2: know, the just I'm I really admire your yeah, this tenacity and, and this will within you to to want your education like that and to fight for it in the way you have. And to, you know, I can I can hear that you'll listen to what somebody has to say back to you, but meanwhile, you know, back at the ranch, you're gonna do what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that really kind of
0: uh, I'm just I was so delighted to be getting the <laughs> opportunity to go back to education. For mm. me, you know, it's, you know, I was so conscious of it when the kids were growing up, you know, mm. I was really wanting them to go, you know, as far as they could call themselves. But I was so conscious of the fact, you know, education is, you know, it, ta- it can take you far,
3: mm.
0: you know, and I just, I just always wanted that opportunity to go back. Now, how I how it pans out, I don't know, but that opportunity has come and I'm grabbing with both hands.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and come find me over in Hindsight Conversations on Twitter and Instagram.